Bible, if you would, and open it to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. And we are going to continue this morning's series that we began a few weeks ago called Kingdom Come, in which we're talking about the, what Jesus meant when he preached the gospel of the kingdom, what he meant when he invited us to enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes our understanding or really misunderstanding of salvation has no space in it for the reality of the message Jesus preached, which was the gospel of the kingdom. And so we're learning about what that means. And in our first week together, we learned that Christian salvation is not a backstage pass to keep in your pocket so that when the show is over, you can go to the party. That's not at all the gospel. And Jesus made it very clear that it wasn't. Instead, the gospel is more like, and we learned this in the first week, an invitation from God to join him on stage in what he's doing in our world and to allow his kingdom to enter our lives in such a way that his kingdom enters our world. Or to put it very simply, we said in that first week that Jesus is less interested in getting you to heaven and more interested in getting heaven into you. And we've begun to understand what that's all about. This morning, we're going to take the second step in that journey. And let me begin by asking you, what is it these days in your life that you're getting better at? I'm sure there's probably some things you're getting worse at, but what are some of the things that you're getting better at? All of us are good at some things, not so good at others. And as we get older, the list changes. I turned 55 a couple weeks ago. I'm getting better at identifying places that have senior discounts. Yes. <laughs> I'm not nearly as good at climbing the stairs of CenturyLink Field with my knees, you know, so I'm getting better at some things, not so good at others. We tend to define ourselves and others by what they or we are good at instead of what they're getting better at. But God sees things very differently. You heard about the teenager who noticed the necklace her grandmother always wore. And so she asked her about it and, and grandma showed it to her. It was a silver locket engraved with the words, in loving memory. And this piqued the teenager's curiosity. So she asked grandma, what's inside of it? And Grandma said, I keep a lock of grandma's, Grandpa's hair inside of that locket. Confused, the girl said, but Grandma, Grandpa's still alive. I know, Grandma said wistfully, but his hair is all gone. And I keep it <laughs> in loving memory in there. Yeah. It's easy to focus on things that are not what they once were instead of things that are getting better. You know, when it comes to age, no one who has been gracefully married for a long time would ever trade the relationship they've grown into for the one that they started with. I know Ron and I wouldn't. But we live in a world that doesn't think that way, that doesn't think in terms of what we're getting better at, but focuses on what we can't do anymore. God sees things differently. A reporter watched how hard the world-famous, award-winning cellist Pablo Casals practiced with his cello 
when he was in his late 80s. Understand that by then, Casals was considered the greatest cellist, not only in the present, but maybe the greatest of all time, the greatest ever. And yet, despite that status, despite that ability, despite that record, he practiced for hours every single day, even in his last few years of life. And the reporter, seeing this passion and this discipline, he asked Casals, he said, you're the best by a wide margin. He says, why do you still practice so hard? And Pablo Casals gave a memorable answer. He said, because I think I'm still getting better. Think about the passion, the joy behind that discipline, behind that devotion. And I invite you to think of it because that's the kind of life Jesus invites us into. That is a picture of the kingdom of God. That is salvation. And we're going to explore that to an even deeper degree than we did in our first week this week. We've been learning that Jesus' message wasn't an offer of a backstage pass to a party after the show. It was an invitation to get on stage with God and the band and to be part of it. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, at the very beginning of his ministry, the scripture says, from that time on, emphasis on the continuation, Jesus began and continued all the way to the end to preach this message. Repent, change your mind, change the way you think about things, because the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, as we saw in the first week when he said that, he wasn't talking about the arrival of the end of time. He wasn't talking about the arrival of eternity as a place or a destination. He was talking about a reality that was breaking into the world through his ministry and entering the lives of people here and now on earth. The Pharisees came and said, when's the kingdom of heaven going to come? How will we know it's here? Jesus said, you won't come, you won't see it by observing it. It's in you. It enters you and it enters the world through you. This morning, we're going to explore that idea of the kingdom more deeply, and we're going to learn that Christian salvation, hear me, church, is not having the right answer to some cosmic question. It never was, and it never will be. Instead, it is a great journey in a very specific direction. I invited you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Let's listen to Jesus teach us. Beginning with verse 28, Jesus asked the religious leaders of his day, what do you think? He said, there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, his son answered. If anybody's ever raised teenagers, you recognize this moment. Here it is, right? <laughs> I will not. But later, he changed his mind and he went. And then the father went to the other son, catch this. And he did the same thing. And this son answered and said, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Now, Jesus asks, which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, it's not a tough question. The first, they answered. And then he said to them, catch this, friends. He said, I tell you the truth. Now, realize his audience. He's speaking to the most devout religious crowd of his day. He said, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and prostitutes are, present tense, entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. The tax collectors and prostitutes, hey, religious gang, are way ahead of you. They are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. 
Now, let, let's notice a couple things here because we want to we understand what he meant. First, notice that one of the sons knew how to give the right answer. The second son, he knew what the right answer to that question was. The father comes and says, go and work today in my vineyard. The second son, he knows the right answer. I will, sir. Appends a little sir to the end to show respect. Why? Because that's the right answer. And he knows the right answer. But he never got around to actually working in the vineyard. He never got around to doing what the father wanted. Sometimes we think that being a Christian means knowing the right answers. Church, it's much more than that. Much more than that. All of us in this room, for example, know the speed limit in Buckley. (laughs) But that won't do us any good when we get pulled over for exceeding it. And so we grit our teeth and do what it says, even though we know it's not right. Somebody say amen. Okay, right? There's a difference between knowing the right answer and doing the right thing. So first notice that the second son, he knows the right answer. He can give it in spades. But he never gets around to actually doing it. Now, in Jesus' story, notice that the arc of the story of the first son, the one who reminded us maybe of our own teenage years, Notice that the arc of the story of the first son plays out over time. He goes through a season of giving very wrong answers. I will not. Yet, his destiny is to become the good son in the end. Or to put it another way, the good son starts out by giving all the wrong answers. If you only listen to what he says, he's the bad guy in the story. But Jesus calls our attention, listen, friends, more to what the Son does in the end than what he says in the beginning. And that is the crux of the story he tells. That's incredibly significant. Sometimes we act like saying the right thing, knowing the right answer, is all that matters. But Jesus says that people who've learned to give all the right answers often are completely in the wrong. For example, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus speaking again, he says to the religious crowd of his day, listen to this, he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Sometimes we assume the same thing. Anybody who reads their Bible must be a Christian. Jesus said that understanding is misguided. These are the scriptures that testify about me, but you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. In other words, you get it in your head, but never in your hand or your heart. You know the right answer, but never get around to doing the right thing. And Jesus is very pointedly calling attention to that tendency that we sometimes have with respect to our relationship to God, with respect to salvation. Now, understand that avoiding this trap isn't hard or complicated. It just means that we see learning the Bible as the first step to being Christ followers, not the ballgame. It's the first step to being a Christ follower. Imagine what your experience would be right now if this morning you took the first step to getting dressed but didn't get finished. You put on your underwear, you came to church on Mother's Day, you walked in the door and sat down. Your experience right now would be very different (laughs) if that were the case. And you would say, but I took the first step. And we would say, yeah, but you didn't finish. (laughs) There's more to the story here. Put some clothes on, right? But we tend to approach God's word the same way. Hey, I read it, I listen to it. I never get around to doing it. 
And Jesus is calling attention to that difference. Church, understand, this is why Jesus often said and did wildly unexpected stuff that the crowd didn't understand. For example, there's this moment in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 to 13. Turn there if you want. You don't have to. But in a nutshell, what's happening is Jesus is walking through Jerusalem. He's walking through maybe not the greatest part of town we know because he encounters the booth of a tax collector, an extortion man, the mafia of their day. And he sees a guy there named Levi. And Levi is a career criminal. And Jesus doesn't call the police. Jesus doesn't condemn him for his behavior. In fact, Jesus goes up and says, Hey, Levi, come and follow me. I'm inviting you to be one of my disciples. And the crowd that heard that were shocked. What? Levi? Are you kidding? He would become Matthew later. And the scripture says he took many steps beyond that. In fact, that night he went to meet at, at, at Levi's house, Matthew's house, with all of his friends, an extended collection of the, the wrong side of the tracks. Tax collectors, prostitutes, criminals of all kinds. So, so many so that the religious crowd said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And Jesus gave an amazing answer. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And suddenly, questions arose in the hearts of those who looked on. Jesus, are you for what's right or not? Or, or there's that powerful moment in John chapter 8 when, when a woman caught in the act of adultery is dragged in front of a crowd, and with a word, Jesus forgives her and sets her free. This not very long after he went out of his way to say, the only grounds for you to ever end your marriage is physical infidelity or physical violence. And if you end your marriage outside of those bounds, you are sinning, you are off the track, you are wrong, and you will reap the consequences. So what is it, Jesus? Are you for the sanctity of marriage or not? You turn right around then and forgive this woman. Or the woman at the well, she's been married five times. He doesn't focus on it. He calls her instead to follow him. And Jesus' behavior in these moments makes no sense to us when we think of salvation as having the right answers or when we think of it as living inside the boundaries. But Jesus is calling our attention to the fact that it's much more than that. How are we going to make sense of this? Is he for law and order or mercy and grace? Is he for sanctity of marriage or not? What is it about the, th the thief on the cross's confession that changes a career criminal into a son of God with an eternal destiny in the Father's house. This question lies at the heart of Jesus' mission and message. And the answer, hear me, church, the answer is that Jesus is infinitely, and I use that word literally, he is infinitely more interested in the direction a harder life is moving than the place it currently occupies. Let me say that again. Jesus is infinitely more interested in the direction my life is moving than in the place it occupies in any given moment. Which of the sons did what his father wanted? The one who's in the wrong place in the moment or the one who was moving in the right direction the whole time? Listen to what Jesus said at the end of his story about the two sons. He said, verse 31, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Are entering as present tense, describing a present reality, manifesting as a direction, 
not a destination. We live in a creation where, where everything is, is always moving through space and time. And when we remember that, what Jesus is saying begins to make sense. For example, you know, I'm kind of excited. I'm sort of a nerd when it comes to NASA. And the, you know, the plan is that in the next 10, 12, 15 years, we're going to actually send a manned mission to the moon. I mean, to Mars. <laughs> to Mars. We've been to the moon already, unless you think they did that in Hollywood. But anyway, um, going to Mars. Now, here's the thing about the Mars mission, though. Here's, here's the thing that's fascinating. Um, in the moment when that mission launches, it'll launch in a, a direction from the planet, but Mars will be way over here. They will literally, when they launch, be going away from it. Why? Because they know that everything's moving all the time. And they know that if they go away from it in the right direction, eventually when they get far enough out, they're going to encounter Mars. And the trip back's going to be the same way. When they leave Mars, they're going to be going away from Earth. But because everything's moving, they're going to end up at Earth. This is the reality in a creation where everything is moving. Guess who's moving as well in that creation? Not just planets, but you and me. We are moving through space and time. We can't stop it. And so what is more significant is your direction than your location. This is why Jesus preaches the kingdom of God. Now, make no mistake, Jesus made it clear that there are ultimately only two destinations. There are ultimately only two eternal destinations. One is represented by my right hand, and that's heaven. One is represented by my left hand, and that's hell. One of those two destinations is where every human being will ultimately arrive. But what is significant in the meantime is not where someone is on the continuum between those two places, but which direction they're going. The Pharisees, the religious crowd, the, tax or the, uh, the teachers of the law in this story are positionally way close to heaven. They don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Okay, they're right over here. But guess which way they're facing? Away from eternity at the Father's house. So what becomes inevitable? Their arrival in what we call around our house the bad place. By the same token, the tax collectors and prostitutes, Matthew, Levi, this crowd that Jesus is having dinner with, you know, they're outside the bounds. They got a lot of issues and major problems. But in the moment when they turn towards Jesus, in the moment when they receive the gospel of the kingdom, they face a different direction. And now, guess what becomes inevitable? Their arrival at the kingdom of heaven. This is why Jesus preached the kingdom. Let me help you understand this. And we'll kind of turn into the home stretch this morning very deeply. Because John Ortberg writes about the difference between, he does this beautifully, the difference between a bounded set and a centered set. Those of you who know a little bit about education, you know sets are, are groups of things that are the same. So a bounded set would be a group of things that share a common characteristic defined by their boundary. For example, if we were to say, to describe a bounded set, that a good pet is one that has good manners, is obedient and loving and noble and friendly, then dogs are in and cats are out, right? They're outside the boundary, so they're not in that bounded set, right? Now, if you want, you know, if you like other things about pets, go ahead, have a cat. That's not our, our point this morning, has to do with, a, so the boundary is, right? The boundary makes all the difference in a bounded set, Sometimes we think of our faith that way. Does someone confess Jesus? Well, they have crossed the boundary. Does someone act morally? They must be inside the boundary. Does somebody believe in the right causes? Eh, they must be inside the boundary. But Jesus' story about the sons uses a very different measurement. 
in Jesus' story, the sons aren't a bounded set. Instead, John talks about how they are better reflected as what we call a centered set. Now, let me dif- distinguish between a bounded set and a centered set. In a centered set, a thing is defined by its orientation to the center. So, for example, the set of bald people has Mr. Clean at the center, right? He's not a single hair on his head. There he is. He's at the center of the set of balded people. Someone outside of the set would be Albert Einstein. He's a long ways from bald, right? Hair going all over the place. It's pretty crazy. But here's the thing in a centered set. Catch this, church. A baby may be born bald and close to the center, but she's growing hair. So from the moment of her birth, she's on her way out of the set. A 20-year-old may be full of hair, but it's just beginning to recede. He's actually on his way to the center of the set. And your orientation to the center is what makes all the difference in a centered set as opposed to a bounded set. You see the difference. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are in the kingdom of God ahead of you. They're outside the boundaries, but oriented to the center. This is the gospel. Are you oriented to the center or merely looking for boundaries to justify yourself? Friends, this distinction is terribly important to grasp because the reason Jesus preaches the kingdom is to invite us to turn towards the center and start moving towards it, not simply to cross a boundary. And the great mistake that Jesus was calling our attention to in the parable of the two sons is that some of us say, well, if I look at the boundaries... I'm in, and it doesn't matter if I'm face to the center or not. And Jesus says, no, 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 God's looking for you, Greg, to be face to the center, not merely in the boundaries. As you face to the center, you're going to move over those boundaries, but you can be inside of them and faced out, and your destiny is not a good one. This is the gospel. Uh, Australian ranchers have a wonderful proverb that kind of captures this idea. They say, there are two ways to keep a herd together on a ranch. He says, one way is to build a fence. The other way is to dig a well. If you dig a well, the herd becomes centered and they stay together. The gospel of the kingdom is a well. It's an invitation to you and I to orient to the center. Let me give you an illustration. We're almost done this morning. Uh, The Bible tells us about Rahab the prostitute in Joshua chapter 2 in your Bible. And if you know the story, you know that she helped the people of God and, and became a hero of faith even though she was outside the boundaries. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 calls her an example of faith even though she had a terrible job. James chapter 2 makes it even more pointed and direct, verses 25 and 26. Listen to what James tells us. He says that the moment she changed direction, the boundaries became irrelevant. Here's the way the Bible puts it. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? In other words, it was her direction, her personal direction, not her location that defined her and made her an example of faith to us to this day. Wrap this all up this way. There is no such thing as having the right answer. There's only a change of direction. Or to put it technically in theological terms, there is no orthodoxy right belief without orthopraxy right behavior. 
to be oriented to the center is what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. Maybe, maybe you're saying to yourself this morning, I don't do the bad stuff my culture does, and you're sort of congratulating yourself about it. Hey, it's great. You're not suffering those consequences, but be careful. According to Jesus, the real question isn't whether you do or don't do the bad stuff, but whether you're getting better at the good stuff. Pablo Casals said, why do I practice so much even in my 80s, even though I'm the best? Because I feel like I'm still getting better. Church, that's the gospel of the kingdom. You and I in a never-ending increase of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. At that fruit of the Spirit, you know what? I am declining physically. Somebody say amen if you know what it's all about. But... I'm getting better at that stuff. And it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Ortberg writes, the people Jesus warned were precisely those who prided themselves on being inside the boundaries while facing away from the center. And the mission that Jesus invites us to be a part of isn't about moving people across boundaries. It's about orienting them to the center. After his Easter resurrection, what did Jesus say to the disciples? You probably know this, Matthew chapter 28, we call it the Great Commission, but listen carefully. He said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm the center. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Make disciples is very different from make people who know the right answer. It describes those who are learning a new way to live those who are continually, those who are practicing even in their 80s. Teaching them to obey, again, that's not a call to create people who know the right answers. It's a call to inspire and educate people to do the right thing. And this is the gospel of the kingdom. The real question we have to wrestle with is this, is there such a thing as a Christian who isn't a disciple? Well, if your definition of Christian is they can give the right answer, you might be deceived into thinking there is. But if you listen to Jesus' story about the two sons, you're going to be looking, not necessarily for those who are giving right answers, you're going to look for those who are willing to be reoriented to the center. So Jesus sees Levi and says, come follow me, Levi. I'm going to turn you into Matthew. And Levi accepts that invitation and enters into the gospel, the reality of the kingdom. So the question this morning as we finish is this, which way are you moving Towards the center or away from it? Towards Jesus or away from him? Dallas Willard writes wonderfully, a disciple is someone who says, I want to live like Jesus would if he were me. Yeah. How would Jesus treat your wife or your husband? How would Jesus parent your kids? How would Jesus go to work at your job? How would Jesus go to school where you study? How would Jesus relate to your neighbors? How would Jesus relate to your friends? How would Jesus relate to your enemies? A disciple is someone who says, I want to live like Jesus would if he were me. The Apostle Paul understood salvation as a direction. And so he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, these words, beginning with verse 12, the last quote this morning. He says, I press on. He doesn't say, I've arrived. He doesn't say, I I crossed the boundaries. I got my ticket. 
He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Forgetting what's behind, straining towards what is ahead, practicing in his 80s. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward direction in Christ Jesus. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. In every moment of that expression of his heart, there's a direction. And this is the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the beautiful thing is, and here's where we end, the beautiful thing is, like that great cellist, Casals, once you enter the kingdom, you don't lose your taste for practice. It increases. Because you say, I think I'm still getting better. I think I'm still getting better. This is the gospel game. Next week, we're going to talk about some very specific ways that you do this concrete Monday through Friday stuff. But first understand, direction, not destination. Doing the right thing, not having the right answer. One last quote, Dallas Willard says this. There is no problem in human life for which apprenticeship to Jesus is not the solution. You say, well, it's not going to solve the economy. It will totally solve your fear of and relationship to the economy. Well, it's not going to parent my kids. No, but it will totally reorient your approach to your kids. It's not going to fix my marriage. My husband's a dork. It is going to totally change your orientation to your, there is no problem it won't, it won't cure me of cancer no it'll just give you eternal life and it may cure you of cancer on the way church understand there is no problem in human life for which apprenticeship to Jesus is not the solution so the gospel is an invitation to be apprenticed to Jesus would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me Lord we thank you for your word this morning God, teach us to turn towards you. Teach us that your invitation, your gospel, is that we would turn towards you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never turned towards Jesus. Know this in the moment that you do, and you can choose that moment right now. The Bible says you are born again. You are a new creation. You come to life in ways you never were before and that last forever. In the moment you turn towards Jesus, you can do it right now. Just say, Jesus, I'm turning towards you. Maybe you're here and and you've been living inside the boundaries for a long time, but you're realizing right now that you're actually not turned towards the center. You're not practicing anymore. Jesus invites you back to that joy of your first love by turning towards the center again. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would take deep root in our hearts and minds and our souls. And as we go from here to celebrate our moms, Lord, let it be with an awareness that in the end, you are the parent we honor and obey. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends? Mm -hmm.